Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, would you open up to the book of Romans, chapter 12, this morning. This morning, we continue along in our series on just simply what is the church, titled Ecclesia. Today, uh, we perhaps deal with one of the more controversial subjects uh, when it comes to the church, speaking specifically to the idea of church membership. I was a young pastor. I'd been in the pulpit for around two years and decided that I was going to do a series in ecclesiology and just wrestle with the church on what the church is, what we're supposed to be doing. More specifically, trying to get the gospel right and how that applies and the implications it has for our lives. And one Sunday morning, I spoke on church membership. I wasn't intending to be controversial, tried to speak clearly, but did not realize oftentimes the divide in people's minds when it comes to membership and meaningful membership and why it matters. I finished the sermon and I looked up down the center aisle and I saw this young lady who was in her 70s make a beeline right down the row for me and she was headed right at me. I could tell she was upset and I could tell that she was angry. She then proceeded to tell me that nowhere in her Bible in the red letters does it ever speak about church membership. And that my notion that I would call us to a little bit of a higher standard as a church and have meaningful membership and understanding what the expectations are for the member of the church and the pastors of the church and the elders of the church and what roles that we play in the diverse body, I did not intend to be so divisive. But that morning to her, I was very divisive. She told me I was unbiblical and taught a doctrine that did not exist explicitly within the text. And my contention then is my same contention today that absolutely the idea of membership is not just implied, but it is directly stated throughout the New Testament in particular. That there is a call by God to be a part of the local church. And local church membership, it means something and it matters. And all throughout Scripture, we see this idea of God telling his pastors and his elders to, to give account and that you will be judged one day by how you lead the people that God has put in your care. He tells us elsewhere that as a people of God, we must identify the, the gifts and the talents that exist within the body. Not only that, throughout the New Testament, this word ecclesia, which is the title of our series, the called out, the gathering of the people, the assembly, when you do a word study on that word alone, you will find that over 95% of the times that the Bible talks about the church, he is speaking about the local church, not the universal church. That there is a place and there is a role for the universal church. And yes, we, we identify with other brothers and sisters throughout Christendom and evangelicalism, but when we see in the Word of God Him speaking about the church, 95% of the time He is talking about a called out local group of people that are seeking to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in the city and in the state and in their place of the world. In Romans chapter 12, we see this argument of the diversity that exists within the body of Christ. 
And we see that Paul is speaking to the church in Rome and and calling the people to identify their giftedness and and to understand that giftedness, but to use that giftedness to serve the body and to help reach people that are far from God that would need to know Christ. But before we look too closely at the text, I just want to define membership for us in the beginning, and then we're going to come back to this definition towards the end. Biblically speaking, when we speak of membership, that it is this formal relationship that exists between a church and a Christian. And it's characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of the Christian's discipleship and their growth and their maturity in Christ. And it is therefore exemplified in the life of the member of the church, their willingness to live that out under the care and under the authority of the church. Now, I would contend with you that there's not a single soul in this room today or watching online that deeply appreciates and gravitates towards the word authority. We reject that idea. And the idea that that we would be called to a position of, of submission for those that have been entrusted with our care, that sort of rubs against us in the wrong way because not one single person in here likes to be told what they should do or how they should live or how they should think according to the word of God. We we reject those things often. And I think one of the primary reasons we do so is because we have seen authority in our lives, both spiritual and familial and even civilly, that have abused that authority. And so we see authority through the lens of of broken relationships and and evil and wrong intentions at times, yet at the same time, we still understand this truth that God entrusts our care and our soul care to elders and and to pastors and, and to staff people and to Sunday school teachers that would go and they would stand before God and that one day they're going to give an account according to Hebrews 13. But as we pick up in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, let's remind ourselves of of perhaps what happens in the previous verses where Paul just says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, where Paul spends an entire 11 chapters in the book of Romans describing and, and, and affirming with great detail about how God has reconciled us in our sins to himself. And that though we were deserving of of eternal separation and punishment from him, God did all the work and he reconciled us to him through Christ. And then Paul makes this statement, because of these things, because of the mercies of God, and then we pick up beginning in verse 3 where he says, for by grace given to me, I say to everyone amongst you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Because of the mercies of God. What he goes on to do is he begins to identify this spiritual giftedness that exists within the life of the church. He begins to identify that that God begins to equip certain people in unique and in special ways. But before he does that, he tells them, though you are special with this gift, at the same time, you are equally unspecial and to not think so highly of yourselves. It's like those scenes, you remember early on when when all of us used to watch and were infatuated with the television show American Idol. 
And the reason why we watched that in the very beginning was because for me personally, at least after season one, I wanted to watch the very beginning because I wanted to see the rejects. I wanted to see those that thought they could sing and would come on national television and clearly they could not sing to save their lives. And week in and week out, my family, we would tune in and we would laugh and we would make fun of, so to speak. And one of the conversations that would happen oftentimes with those judges is you would get this notion and this understanding. What made you think that you could come before this and become the next American Idol? And more often than not, they would answer the question, well, my mama told me that I was special and I was a good singer. Brother and sister, we know as we saw that, that their mama lied to them <laughs> and was dishonest. All, all you want, but it was true. And the idea is, is that you perhaps might think you're special, but the reality is, is Paul begins to remind us by means of grace, for by the grace given to you in verse 3, I say to every one of you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think but rather think with sober judgment. In the Greek, that word sober can be translated elsewhere as, as just sensible. To think with sensible judgment in, in your right mind. And so one of the reasons why the gospel has implications, not just at salvation, but even when we're 40 years old or, or 60 years old or 80 years old, is that the gospel rightly reminds us to think correctly about ourselves so that we do not become puffed up with pride and, and sin that would exist within our lives. To not think too highly of ourselves, but also not to think too lowly of ourselves. You see, the gospel that Paul is reminding us of in verse 3 teaches us that we were so needy and so helpless that we needed a Savior to intervene through an act of grace and a demonstration of mercy by His power because if we could save ourselves, then we would not today in this very moment, at this very minute, need Christ. But the reality, according to Scripture, is that we do, that permanently we exist in this state of, of self-sufficiency and we battle against our pride and our own talent and our own ability and our own knowledge and our own wisdom. Friend, do not think too highly of yourselves. And on the flip side, do not do the opposite and think too lowly of yourself. For those that would, would pout and those that would become the perpetual victim, that we fail to understand and grasp the gospel, that the gospel overturns both our pride and it overturns our despair. The whole idea is that God has designed us uniquely and he has given us gifts to exercise, to, to take our focus off ourselves and to place it rightly upon other people and to use it for his kingdom and for his namesake. And so the gospel helps transform and it helps change. But notice what he says at the end of verse 3. He says, with sober judgment, sensible judgment, but each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This idea of, of measure of faith is, is contended within scholars and, and New Testament scholars who would argue, does this mean that God just gives some a greater degree of faith as opposed to others and, and that some just grant that, God gives it sovereignly? It, it perhaps could mean that thing, but it also means that God has given us this standard of faith. 
In the Greek, this idea of, of measure is the word metron. It's which, where we get the word meter. And, and it carries with it this idea of a standard of measurement from which all of us are to equally measure our own faith according to the faith that exists within God. And that God gives us access through his son Jesus that we can grow and understand in that faith, equal access. We don't need a pastor or a preacher or a teacher to gain that access from what he has given us through Christ. And that faith that God gives us, it it makes us equal in God's eyes because the same faith that Jim has access to, I have access to. And the same faith that Chip Govan has access to, I have access to equally in Christ. And so I approach him with, with humility, but with boldness and with confidence, knowing that he hears me and he hears my cries and he knows my heart. Verse four, the text goes on and he says, for as in one body, we have many members, Yet the members do not have the same function, so we many are one body in Christ and individually members of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Therefore, let us use them in proportion, if them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, a couple of quick things about that word prophecy that exists there because it's often misunderstood. I previously pastored a church and we, we were in an area that was uh, surrounded at all sides by Pentecostals and Charismatics. And on a regular basis, we would contend with, with the meanings and the understandings of, of these words and, and what prophecy really means according to the scripture and, and how the church has historically, and I mean historically at before the 20th century, understood some of these words is deeply important. Some would contend that at times, and we see this in the scripture, that prophecy would mean speaking the very words of God like you're dictating the words of the Bible. And this was true for, for a point in time. It was a thus saith the Lord uh, time frame. But the reality of Scripture is that this canon is now closed. And there are to be no more thus saith the Lord that, that would be an addition to this or a subtraction to this or even really a modification of what God has spoken and what he has already said and deemed worthy. It's not new revelation. That God would supernaturally give you this dictation from God that you would say outside of the means of his scripture because he has fully spoken in his word and this word is sufficient for us. But Paul seems to delineate here this idea of this gift of prophecy in proportion to our faith. And it could be simply as, as simple as just a matter of, of a sense in which God would give you to, to speak, to, to stand before and to proclaim God's word would be one aspect of it. Or it could be just a nudge that you would understand that God told you to tell someone this, that they just needed to hear this voice of encouragement to, to be affirmed in, in some ways. And I would contend with you that the safest place to be when we go to affirm people is one, not to try to predict their future. To not say that God told me that these things are going to happen to you in this way if you sow these seeds or have these actions. 
Not one of us can see that far in advance and not one of us here in this place is God. And so when we have an encouraging word for our brothers and sisters, let it be the encouraging word that has already been revealed in the scriptures. And when we speak promises over people's lives, which we absolutely should, we make sure that the promises are given in the right context with the right tone and with the right emotion connected to the truth of God's word. So that we never say that we speak for God and then we do the worst thing possible is that we begin to malign and we begin to misspeak for him. You think about all the times in your life where you've been misheard and misunderstood or someone took words that you said and they twisted them to to mean something else and they put their own meaning on those words. And, And this is often what we can do when we're not careful, when we open up God's word to make sure that we are speaking rightly and correctly for God and understanding it with the original meaning that the authors would have intended it to mean. It can have many applications, friend, but just one meaning. He goes on in verse 7 and he says, If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. He begins to identify what we later came to understand and the way we term these spiritual gifts that exist within the life, friend, of the local church of the body, to be used for the body. When you back out of the New Testament, you find that there are six different lists that exist throughout the New Testament that list out close to 22 different spiritual gifts. Now, many years ago, I got turned off to doing and giving people spiritual gift inventories. They're problematic in some ways. They, they can be useful at times, but, but for, me, for me, there's a more of a preferred way to, to be able to identify what is the gift that God has given me and how can I use it in the context of the church that is perhaps better than taking some sort of inventory because when we take those inventories, what I found over time is that more often than not, people will not evaluate themselves as they actually are, but they will evaluate themselves on how they want to be perceived. And so I answer the questions in relationship to what I want others to think of me and not really where I'm actually at in that moment. And this is what becomes so problematic about it. And so how do you discover your gifts and how do you know what those gifts are? Just two really simple words, ability and affirmation. For me, the most helpful way in determining what my gifts were and have been throughout time is that I find godly people that are walking with Jesus that know me well enough and have seen me in a variety of circumstances as I seek to serve and to nurture those things. And I'll ask them, what do you think my gifts are? How can I contribute to the body or this small group in this class or this local church? What is it that God has calling me to based on my ability that he gives me, maybe just temporarily for a season, but maybe and hopefully for the rest of my life. I hope that I have the gift of teaching and that it doesn't go away next week. I've vested myself and I, and I hope as long as I'm able to, to think and to speak and to, and to walk that God would allow me to exercise that gift. But at some point, friend, all of the gifts go away. All of the gifts at some point perhaps have a time stamp 
on it, none the least of when we eventually meet our Savior in heaven. Every Christian in this room today who was born again and regenerate by the Holy Spirit has a gift this morning. God has given you, according to Scripture, at least one gift. And he's given you that gift not so that you could keep it to yourself and not so you could speak about it in private and not tell anyone, but he rather gave you the gift because God made our gifts to be interdependent upon one another. It's why Paul lists all of these things out in this interconnected web. And there's all these gifts that when functioning properly in the context of the local church with meaningful membership, that this is how the body of Christ thrives. It's how it grows. It's how it pursues health. And God gives us these gifts to be interdependent upon one another. And oftentimes our own pride can get in the way because A, we just choose to to not exercise the gift or B, which is another form of pride, we think that our gift is not important enough. And so we never use it. Our acts of service we, we don't do because no one will ever recognize us. No one will ever know. This past week, I perhaps heard one of the most profound testimonies. I hear good things about our church all the time, but this one sort of made me tear up a little bit. I was told by one of our staff members about a senior adult couple in our church that over the past 52 weeks, every week without fail, one of our deacons would go and collect the groceries for this senior adult couple, and he would bring those groceries to their home every week for 50 plus weeks. He doesn't know I know that. He doesn't know that anybody knows that because he didn't tell anybody. It was just simply the senior adult that was just saying how thankful they were for our church and and this group that, that did not want to get out and, and, and was fearful of going to the grocery store. And, and he saw that need and he said, I'll, I'll take care of you and I'll meet this need. A remarkable act of, of service and faithfulness and, and presence in the life. Can you imagine for 50 plus weeks doing that over and over and over and over again without fail? That's remarkable, friends. Amen. Truly remarkable. My admonition to us as we look at these things in the context of the local church, as we seek our ability and what God would call us to, as we seek affirmation from others, I would just simply encourage you, if you don't know what your gift is, my my first warning is don't try to discover your gift, but rather focus, uh, don't focus on finding the gift, but rather focus on nurturing a pattern of service in your life. But I think when we embody service to to people in in the quiet places and in the margins, those gifts somehow have a a way of of making themselves known and they'll reveal themselves to us. But notice what he says as he continues to go on speaking to the church and the behavior of the church and the behavior of of the pastors included in this. Look in verse 9 where he says, local church. If meaningful membership is is a real thing, then he says to let love be genuine. To let it be sincere, to to not let it be phony. You see, one of the the characteristics of a a healthy church member is that, that our love for one another should be blameless and without hypocrisy. 
And I'll tell you what, um, some of us, uh, not myself included, but maybe the person on your right, we're gonna have a hard time with this when our masks go away. Think about this. I can't tell you how many conversations that I've been in with my mask on and, and all they can see is my eyes. And I praise the Lord, that's all they could see were my eyes. And we're gonna have to practice our facial uh, uh, recognition and, our, and our, our facial reactions to things when we get bad news or even good news that we're gonna have to remember that, that people can now see our faces once again and we can't hide literally behind the mask anymore. Friend, our love should be without hypocrisy. But notice he goes on and he says to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And so that means the truth of our relationship, that, that our membership, that our love for one another should be grounded in God's truth. That it's not unity at all costs, that we avoid truth. No, it's, it's as we pursue unity, we're truthful with, with who we are and, and where we are. And we bring those things together to walk forward in truth and in unity, to abhor what is evil and hold fast what is good, to love one another with brotherly affection. Friends, our membership, our love for one another, it should feel, listen to me, it should feel like family. If you've ever been a part of a church where you've had people that get mad and they, they get sour with the pastor, they don't like the music, but they've been with you for a long time. And oftentimes they leave in haste because they don't like this, they don't like that, and, and, or they're mad at leadership and they, they want to walk away. And, and then what they fail to realize when they walk away for the wrong reason, they're not just leaving the pastor that they dislike or the music that they don't like, they are leaving their brothers and sisters, their family, and they're walking away and it hurts when we see them go. We feel that. It's because church is family. No more than I would ever give up on my, any of my five children, no more than I would ever give up on my wife that if I get mad at her, usually it's she getting irritated with me and, and putting up with me, that she's not gonna walk out or just say, I've, I've had this, I've had it, I quit that we're gonna to stay together in, in good times and, and in bad and we're gonna endure and we're gonna pursue Christ together because our family, our church should be like a family. He says then to outdo one another in showing honor. What that means just very simply is that our love should reflect God's worth in every person that we come in contact with that we treat them as image bearers made in the image of Christ, that we outdo one another in showing honor and respect and how can I serve you and how can I meet those needs? And we just have contended at this church that the circle is the best place to do that. It's the place to, to know people and it's the place to be known. It's the place to invest your life in alongside a brother or sister and to bear their burdens alongside one another to continue as image bearers in God and showing honor. Several weeks ago, I came across a friend in college that had been a church planner for the past six years. I hadn't seen him in a long time, didn't know what was going on, but I asked him how his church was doing in the middle of COVID. And he very quickly looked down at his feet in, in sort of an almost shameful and embarrassed way. And he said, my church didn't make it. And I said, brother, what do you, what do you mean by that? He said, well, we, we couldn't meet because of COVID. And then the church just kind of dissolved amongst itself. 
And over and over, I've heard stories like that from, from churches of, of less than 100 some odd people, particularly sometimes when they're older and the giving dries up and the attendance stops and you just gradually drift away and, and this brother is looking to, to start a, a new vocation and a new career. Over and over, I hear stories like that. It almost makes me, in, in many ways, uh, to feel a sense of, of, of guilt or, or, or almost even shame in a little bit that, and how God has just blessed and provided for our church, that our experience here at Travis, though it is different than it has ever been, it is almost unique to the circumstances of many, many pastors and many other ministers. That almost on a weekly basis, whether it be in this service or in the next, we introduce new members. We have folks that are, that are coming to know the Lord, that are, that are being baptized, and, and our experience is one of the unique ones for many churches in our convention. And many of the pastors that I talk to, uh, they don't feel honored, and their people don't show honor, not just to them, but to one another. Friends, we have been deeply blessed at this church, at this location, with these people, the ones amongst you, to serve and to pursue Christ together. Outdo one another in showing love. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. A member's attitude ought to be one that constantly displays the optimism of God's promises found throughout his word. That's what that verse means to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Has this not been the verse that God has called us to this past year? If not this, which one? To, to seek to, to rejoice in a, in a hopeful God that is making all things new, to be patient in the time of trial and tribulation, which is perhaps the most difficult thing to do as we wait for God to get, begin to move or to develop relationships and to be constant and faithful in our prayers to contribute, verse 13, to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality. Friend, as Paul addresses these things in the life to the church in Rome, he is speaking to the local church. Amen. A called out group of people that have been brought together in, in a time such as that to, to speak to a called out assembly here today at 800 West Berry to remind us of our gifts and to use and to seek to exercise those gifts in the context of the body with meaningful membership meaning that we, we know Jesus. And so one of the requirements for being a member of a church is, brother and sister, you have to know Jesus. But you not only have to, to know him, you've got to be pursuing him and, and longing for him and seeking him and hungering for him and thirsting for him. And the reason why we come together is because there are times where we don't seek and hunger and thirst. And so we need each other to remind us we need to sing to one another. We need to, to be called to the hope that God is called to be reminded of that and to be patient in the midst of it. Friends, membership. According to the Bible, as one scholar put it this way, he said it's more of an outpost or an embassy where we gather than a club in which we socialize. You ever lost your passport in a foreign country and had to go to an embassy? What's the thing that they have to do in the very beginning? They have to verify that you are who you say you are somehow. 
They have to verify that you have a citizenship that exists within that country before they reissue that passport. And church membership sort of works in the same way. It's a testimony of our faith in Christ that, hey, I've been bought and paid for and redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And I'm uniting with other believers that profess the same thing. And we're going to come alongside one another. And we're going to seek to see our city and our state and to see the nations reached for the glory of God and the praise and and the worthiness of his name. Membership says that I'm willing to submit to the leadership that God has put over me and and entrusted me in my care. And that young lady that approached me several years ago that was madder than a a hornet at me. The truth be told of her life is that she was just simply just unwilling to submit. She had several broken marriages prior to that, never could get in relationships with just people in general that she was constantly. And so her place was, I just come to a worship service and, and I, I semi belong there. And, and, and let me say this to you, if that's where you are this morning, you are welcome to be here. You will be loved. We will love you. We will seek to show honor to you. But, but it's sort of like this. It's, it's like you're, you're here and you're a fan of Travis, but we would rather, and we believe God's best for you, and we believe God's command for you is to not become a fan of Travis Avenue Baptist Church, but rather to become a part of our team and be a part of our family. It's one thing for you to go to a Dallas Cowboy game and to sit in the stands, to buy a a jersey and maybe to buy a football helmet, maybe to get some autographs. It's one thing for me to, for you to be taken down in the locker room and to meet the players and to get your picture taken on the star. But the reality is you can do all of those things, but never actually be a part of the Dallas Cowboy football team. And over the past several years, we would say, amen, we don't want to be a part of that team. (laughs) We're okay with that. When there's trouble, and there's disunity. We, we don't want to be a part of that team. But when God brings in peace and he provides unity that, that he creates and we contend for that, listen, the time comes to take off the, the pretend jersey and to stop being a fan and to become a part of that family, to serve and to use your gifts in the context of that body, to know people and to be deeply known by people. This is what God has called us to. This is what God's best is for us. If you're still not convinced that membership is a thing, I'll just simply remind you of two verses in the book of Hebrews that haunt me every single day. Hebrews 13, 7 just says this. It's a reminder to remember your leaders for those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. If membership doesn't matter, who's the leader that he refers to? And then he goes on to tell the leaders and remind us in verse 17 of Hebrews 13 to obey your leaders, to submit for them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Listen to this, the most fearful and frightful words that a pastor and elder will ever hear for those they will give an account for how they lead. And so we better lead well. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that speaks to us, that is sufficient and authoritative over our life. 
Father, we ask that you would help us wrestle with some of these things. Questions like, what is the gospel? What is believer's baptism? And today, what, is, what does it mean to be a, a member of a local body? And, and would you call some in this room here today to be a member of this local body? To serve and to use their gifts in the context of, of what you're doing here at 800 West Berry Street in Fort Worth, Texas. So Father, I pray in these brief moments that we have to conclude, I pray that you would speak to your people, that you would challenge us where we are, that we would hear from you. And I pray, God, that if there is anyone in this room here today that does not know you, that does not have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. That they would confess their sins to a faithful and just God who forgives us our sins. And they would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that, that you are the, the Son of God and that, and that you rose again. Father, would you, would you give them faith to see and to believe and to repent this morning? And so would you take our lives in this next few moments, would you consecrate it to you? For Would you refine in us to be the people that you want us to be? For we pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.